Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Thank you very much. Good evening. Good evening. My guest today is film director William Friedkin. I spoke with him at the Turner Classic Movies Festival in Hollywood, where we screened his picture, The French Connection. Film critic Roger Ebert called The French Connection, quote, all surface, movement, violence, and suspense, unquote. Many say it has the best chase scene ever between a car and an elevated train in Brooklyn. The French Connection won five Academy Awards, but Friedkin told me it wasn't a smooth ride to the red carpet. This film had been turned down by every major studio, at least twice. And my producer, a guy named Phil D'Antoni, he and I were going to do Dirty Harry with Frank Sinatra. And we had prepared that for about six months, and then Sinatra pulled out. And the project was dead. We left and did The French Connection, but we went to every studio and they all turned it down. And finally, Dick Zanuck, who ran 20th Century Fox, called us one day and said, you know, I don't know what the hell this thing is that you guys are talking about doing. The script's not very good. He said, but maybe it, I just have a hunch up about it. If you can make this thing for a million and a half dollars, go ahead. And he said, you better do it right away because I'm going to be kicked out of here in about three weeks. 20 minutes. <laughs> and he was. Now, New York, the New York that's depicted in this movie in the, in, the, in the early 70s is a steaming, fetid cesspool, obviously. It's just so disgusting. All depends it, how you look at <laughs> it. <laughs> there might be a couple of blocks in the 60s between Fifth and Park that might be uh, cleaner than, might have been cleaned up, but it was pretty nasty back then, right? I liked it. I, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was very cinematic. Right. And I'm from Chicago. And I used to ride the subways and the elevated trains all the time. And I loved the streets. I, I loved the streets. And uh, after this film was successful, and I had another successful film after that, I moved to California, learned how to play tennis, and um, uh, ruined my career. <laughs> don't well. ever, if you're a young filmmaker, don't ever learn how to play tennis. Forget it. And you know, you want to walk the streets the way you did. You want to ride the subways. You want to see life. And so that's the way I approach this film. Now, I came from this world. I wasn't you did, slumming. Now, did they give you your way in terms of the casting? What was it like for you casting actors back then when you made this film? Well, originally I wanted Jackie Gleason. And the hell's so funny? <laughs> Jackie Gleason, you know, is one of the greatest actors sure. who ever lived. And uh, he was known as a comedian. But Dick Zanuck said, no, I will never make another film with Jackie Gleason. Because Gleason had just, prior to this, made a, a, a film that was the biggest disaster in the history of Fox. It was a silent movie about a clown called Gigo. 
and it was a disaster. So we went through a lot of guys, and we had um, a very short time left when we had to start. And we had a meeting with Gene Hackman, my producer and I. We weren't that impressed. It was one of the dullest meetings I've ever had. <laughs> but we had to start the picture, and so we hired Gene. I hired Roy Scheider immediately. Why? He walked into the room. I had a casting director who was not really a casting director. He was a critic for the Village Voice. And he uh, had discovered. His name was Bob Weiner. Okay. And he had discovered a lot of interesting people as a critic. He discovered Whoopi Goldberg, a number of other people. And he brought me Roy Scheider, who had not made a film. And Scheider came into my office and sat down. He had a resemblance to the character he played, whose name is Sonny Grasso. He's in the film, too. I never audition. I never have and never will audition an actor. I think it's embarrassing. You know, I think you probably know this early in your career. A lot of actors can read, but then can't act it, or vice versa. So I go on instinct. And Scheider sat down. I said, so what are you doing now, Roy? He said, well, I'm in an off-Broadway play by Jean Genet. And I, I said, what part do you play? He said, I play a, a cigar-smoking nun. And I said, it's interesting. Okay, you're hired. <laughs> that was it. He was perfect. He walked in the room. As, uh, he was perfect. No, and, no, no, no. Hackman had done uh, Bonnie and Clyde prior He had to done Bonnie and Clyde, yeah. but... Uh, you know, he was not really a lead. Right. He was a great supporting actor, but hadn't played a leading role. And I didn't see him as Eddie Egan. Let me say right away that I believe he became one of the greatest American actors ever. Right. No, absolutely. But he, uh, I didn't have him in mind at all. And... Uh, I had a shorthand with my casting director. I said to him, look, let's get that to play the part of the French guy. Let's get that guy that was in that movie Belle de Jour. You know, it was a Louis Bunuel film, wonderful movie with Catherine Deneuve. I said, let's get the guy, you know, he had a kind of a beard, um, two or three day growth of beard. And he said, you mean... Uh, uh, they, I, I forget the name of that, Pierre something. I said, no, not that guy, the other guy. The guy. <clears throat> so he went out and he hired this guy and uh, he said, okay, the guy's name is Fernando Ray. I said, well, hire him. So I went to the airport, Kennedy Airport, met his plane, and uh, in those days you could <clears throat> go right to the gate. And... Um, uh, I didn't see the guy I was looking for. I got paged. I went to the desk, <clears throat> and there's this guy, and it's not the guy from Belle de Jour. <laughs> it was not the, at all the guy from Belle de Jour, but his name was Fernando Ray. So I meet this guy. He's got this little goatee, and he's very sophisticated, Spanish. He looked like a Spanish grandee. And the guy he was playing was a, had been a longshoreman and a Corsican, you know, a real rough-hewn guy. So I'm driving this guy to his hotel, 
And uh, I said, you know, you, you can't have this uh, goatee for this. He said, oh, I could never shave my goatee. I said, why not? He said, oh, I have sores all over my face. You would never want to see the sores. He said, by the way, you know, I'm not French. I'm Spanish, but I can learn enough French. I said, uh, you weren't in Belle de Jour. No, no, I wasn't in Belle de Jour. I've done other films with uh, Luis Bunuel, but not Belle de Jour. So I get him into his hotel, and I called my casting director and producer. I said, you stupid asshole. <laughs> I said, this is not the guy. This is the wrong guy. Thank you very much. This is the wrong guy. And so he said, what are you talking about? I said, this isn't the guy from Belle de Jour. So he looked it up, and indeed, the guy we wanted was named Francisco Rabal. So he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, fire this guy and hire Francisco Rabal. I went back in the office. By the time I got there, they found that uh, Francisco Rabal was not available, did not speak a word of English, so we got stuck with Fernando <laughs> Ray. I would like to tell you that it was all my genius of... <laughs> But I didn't, I had nothing to do with casting the two leads in this picture. Now, that's it. That's... It was, uh, it was really the gift of the movie God. And I think you'll bear this out. There is a movie God, you know, that sometimes smiles upon you and other times. I, I, I was going to say, I did the movie Hunt for Red October and they offered it to Sean Connery and he was sick. He had throat cancer and or he had something seriously wrong with him, and they said he can't do the film. So they cast uh, Klaus Maria Brandauer in the lead role. And uh, he was cast in the lead, and they called me up, and they said, we're going to get Klaus Maria Brandauer. I said, you yeah, know, okay. And then Connery calls back, like, several weeks later, he's had treatments, and he's on the mend. And he comes back and says, I think I can do the film. So they call Klaus Maria Brandauer, and they say, now, what were the dates you said you could work? And Brandauer said, I am uh, directing an opera, and I am appearing in a film, and the only window I can shoot the film is these six weeks. I have to shoot the film these six weeks. And they were like, oh, that's too bad. We're so sorry. The We've had to move God. the schedule. We can't do it during those six weeks. We're so very sorry, Klaus. And boom, he's gone, and Sean showed up, and there you go. So... The casting of films can sometimes be very, very interesting. Sometimes it's very strange. It was in this picture. I can't think of anyone else in that part now. Um, he was just great and uh, an absolutely wonderful actor. He told me how he got his start in film. He was actually discovered by Luis Buñuel. Um, Buñuel's producer brought Buñuel to see some movie with another actor. He wanted him to look at another actor in that film. And uh, after the movie, the, his producer said, well, what did you think? And he said, oh, I didn't like that actor, but the guy who plays the corpse, the dead guy, which is, was Fernando Ray. He had no lines. He was laying in a coffin, and Bunuel hired him. Now, I, I, I wrote this down. I have it on a piece of paper, but I may have left it in my seat. But off the top of my head, I'm struggling. Who edited this film? Who cut this film for you? A guy called Jerry Greenberg. Okay, and, and what was that experience like? Yeah, let's hear it for the editing in this film. Who, uh, 
Jerry well, have... Greenberg edited uh, The Boys in the Band with uh, a man named Carl Lerner, who was a very distinguished New York film editor. And Jerry was his assistant. And uh, uh, when it came time to do this, Carl Lerner wasn't available, so I asked Jerry to do it. What the... was that experience like for you and him? Did it, was he responsible for most of the cuts, or do you get heavily involved without yourself? I, I work on every single aspect of editing. That's where the film is made. You know, to me, what you shoot is just raw material for the cutting room. The, the, uh, when I first made films in New York, we would, uh, we'd come somewhere and we, you know, I think of my memory for years ago was we'd stand inside a building and someone would say, man, this is a great lobby and I think this is great, but you know, we can't cut a deal with them. This location's too expensive. And someone would make a joke and they'd say, well, we can come in here and do it Paul Morrissey style. You know, and when I was younger in the business, I'd turn to somebody and go, what does he mean? What's Paul Morrissey style? He said, that means we run into the building without permits. And we just start shooting until they kick us out. We kind of, we go in, we stage it, and we go in and we squeeze off a couple quick masters and some shots, and then we run out before the cops come. And I was like, wow, shit, I mean, people do that? Now, I must say, this film, did you have permits for everything you did for this film? We didn't have a permit for, <laughs> for nothing, except one thing. We had no permits to shoot in the streets or any of that. We just went out, but I had some actual cops with me who had badges and stuff, off-duty cops, and the two original French Connection cops. But I thought, my producer and I thought, well, you know what? We better get permission from the subway to shoot on an elevated train. So, so we went to see this guy. First of all, uh, I asked him, he was the head of um, the transit authority. <laughs> he, uh, he, he wasn't the CEO or anything like that, but he ran everything. And we got an appointment with him, and the first thing I had to ask him was, how fast can one of these trains go? Which I didn't know. I said, if a train could go at top speed, at a, say 100 miles an hour, this chase idea would not work because the car would not be able to catch the train. And he said, well, the fastest speed that one of these trains goes is 50 miles an hour. So I said, great, we've got a, a chase scene here. He said, what do you mean great? He said, the way you've described what you want to do, he said, if I gave you permission to do this, I would be fired. He said, we have never had a train crash. We've never had a guy hijack a train. He said, it, it's just, you know, it, it, it really never has happened. And it would be extraordinarily difficult for me to approve anything approaching what you've just told me. So we thanked him and I figured, well, I'll steal this thing. And we started on our way out. He said, wait a minute, where are you going? And my producer said, you just told us it would be uh, extraordinarily difficult. He said, did I say impossible? <laughs> no. My producer, who is a Sicilian, said to him, how much? <laughs> he said... New York, baby. He said, $40,000 and a one-way ticket to Jamaica. <laughs> and uh, I remember saying, well, why a one-way ticket. Why don't you just go down and have a nice vacation? He said, because if I give you permission, I will get fired and we'll, <laughs> we'll have to go down there and live, live out my life. Right. And that's what happened. Well, 
We gave him 40 grand, which was a huge percentage of the budget, and he lived happily ever after in Jamaica. There was no chase scene in the original script, so Friedkin and his producer Phil D'Antoni added one. They were determined to outdo the chase scene in Bullet, the Steve McQueen film released a few years earlier. Take a listen to the Here's the Thing archives, where you can hear Turner Classic Movies host Robert Osborne talk about his night with Lucille Ball. Uh, where was the house? On Roxbury, right next door right. to Jack Benny. Right in the heart of Beverly Hills. Right, exactly. And just down the street from Ira Gershwin and around the corner from <laughs> Don't Agnes do Celebrity Moorhead. Map with me, yeah. you. <laughs> Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When The Exorcist came out in 1973, it ushered in a new age of horror cinema. Audience reaction to the film was so strong that theater ushers carried smelling salts to revive those who had fainted. My guest, William Friedkin, directed the movie. Warner Brothers did not want me for The Exorcist. Warner Brothers... Uh, wanted uh, for The Exorcist either uh, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur Penn, or um, who else? Arthur Penn, Stanley, uh, Mike Nichols. Okay. And Arthur Penn turned it down. He said he didn't want to do any more violence on film. He had done Bonnie and Clyde. And Mike Nichols said, you will never be able to get a 12-year-old girl to carry this film on her back and, and do the kind of things that are uh, required. And Kubrick said, look, I only uh, direct the films that I find and prepare myself. So all three of them turned it down. And uh, the guy who wrote the novel and the screenplay wanted me. And finally, I was like the last man standing. And I had just won the Academy Award. That's how I got The Exorcist. Now, the same is with, with French Connection as with, I mean, you do these two films back-to-back, -back, French Connection and The Exorcist, two classic films. Um, what's it like in terms of you directing actors? Are you very, do you just hire them and you bring them in to do what you know they're going to do? Or do you have some kind of input with what they're going to do? Alec, let me tell you how I work on a film. I, I, I would not work this way on a play, and I, I direct a lot of operas and I don't work this way on an opera. But with a film, the films that I've made, I'm more interested in spontaneity than anything else. The, the stuff that I do, the scripts that I've done is not Shakespeare. You know, it's mostly street dialect, especially the French connection. So I want spontaneity so I don't rehearse. I would talk to the actors and find the things that move them either that caused them to laugh or cry or be frightened or whatever. And I would use those things from time to time in the making of the film to suggest whenever it was necessary uh, some emotion. But I would never tell an actor really how to do it. The thing I look for more than anything else in an actor is intelligence. The actor's ability to perceive what the story is about 
and a way to get into it. And you can find that out just by talking to an actor. You know, Roy Scheider, when I cast him, he said, don't you want me to read for this part? I said, there's nothing to read. The guy goes, ah, uh, uh, get your hands up. Get over, what what is that? Who wants to listen to that? In a a goddamn conference room, you know? Uh, So, no, there's nothing to read. It won the Academy Award for screenplay, too. Exactly. But when you come when you come into the experience of doing, I'm only mentioning this because of it's because of, you're coming from French Connection and winning the Oscar and having all the success, and you come into um, the Exorcist. Was Jason Miller your first choice, or was it the same no. thing again? Where a whole lot of actors turned down the part oh, because no. of the content. Once again, it was the movie God. We had cast another. First of all, this for the Exorcist, the studio wanted either Audrey Hepburn. Jane Fonda or Anne Bancroft. And I thought, wonderful, you know, this is great, after they hired me. So they offered the part to uh, Audrey Hepburn. And she was married to an Italian doctor living in Italy. She read the script and she called me and said, you know, I, this is very interesting. It's different for me, but I'd love to do it. But you have to come to Italy to film it. And I said, I'm not going to uh, go to Italy. I don't speak Italian. And uh, I wouldn't be able to communicate directly with the crew. We'd have to bring every actor over to Italy because, it, you know, it's set in Georgetown. And um, I said, Miss Hepburn, wouldn't you just come over for a little while and do this? No. So she was out. We then went to Anne Bancroft, who said, I think this is terrific. So I love to do this, but I have to tell you, I'm in my first month of pregnancy. And she said, if you guys want to wait for me. Now, I said to her, look, I think when you have your child, you are not going to want to go right back to work. Nor do we want to wait nine months, unfortunately. So we had to let her go. We then sent it to Jane Fonda, who sent us all the the same telegram that said, why would I want to be in a piece of capitalist ripoff bullshit like this? (laughs) Now, I've seen her since, and she doesn't remember having (laughs) sent that, but I have it. (laughs) That was her response. I don't know how she really felt, but that was her response. Well, she was honest. She was honest. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ellen Burstyn was hocking me all the time. I I had seen the last picture sure. show, but I didn't know Ellen Burstyn from Cloris Leachman. I didn't know which was which. But Ellen said to me, do you believe in destiny? Has anyone ever asked you that before? Uh, no. Well, she was the only one who ever asked me that. And I said, well, I guess I believe in, she said, I'm destined to play this part. I said, look, the studio wants Jane Fonda, Anne Bancroft, or Audrey Hepburn. This was all going on. She said, I don't care. I'm destined to play this part. And it came about that she was the last person standing. And so we cast her against the wishes of the studio. They did not, they wanted a big star for that. Um, Then we cast... Stacy Keach to play Father Karras. He was a great 
is a great actor. He was the go-to Eugene O'Neill actor on Broadway. And what happened? I went to New York and Jane I... Jane Fonda got to him. Maybe it was that. No, but no, we cast him. I went to New York and I saw the opening night of a play called That Championship Season. And it was uh, written by a man named Jason Miller. Never heard of him. Uh, I thought the play was great. It was, it really reeked of lapsed Catholicism. It was a play about a group of high school guys who won a championship under their coach, uh, but cheated to win. And they were suffering this guilt. And it, the stage was just filled with Catholic guilt, I felt. So I, I said to my casting director, who is this guy that wrote this? I'd love to talk to him, just to talk to him. It turned out that he had studied for the priesthood three years at Catholic University in Georgetown. He came up to meet me in, in uh, I was staying at the Sherry Netherland Hotel and I had the flu and I had a lot of pills. He thought I was a pill freak and uh, I thought he was a drunk and he didn't know what the hell he was doing up there. And I asked him a lot of questions about studying for the priesthood and stuff. And it was a horrible meeting and I went back to Los Angeles. And about two weeks later, as we're starting to prepare the picture, he called me at Warner Brothers. And he said, hey, you know that, that book you were telling me about that you're gonna film, that exorcist? He said, I said, yeah. He said, I am that guy. He said, I am that character. I said, well, you're not. Stacy Keach is that he's going to play the part. He said, I'm telling you, man, I am this guy. And he said, have you ever done anything like a, a screen test? I said, no, I've, I've never shot a screen test. And what's the point? I told you we've cast this. He had never made a film, never been in a movie, only played very small acting roles in a road, road companies. He was delivering milk in Flushing, New York, when he wrote Championship Season. And um, so he said, you gotta test me. You have to give me a screen test. I said, why? What a waste of time. He said, man, I'm telling you. So I had great respect for him as a writer. I said, you wanna shoot a screen test? Okay, you come out here on your own. You get out here, it was like, uh, let's say it was uh, a, a Tuesday. I said to him, get out here by Thursday and I'll shoot a, a screen test with you. And I'll take it out of the camera and give it to you so you can show it to your kids. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, I can't get out there Thursday. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I don't fly. He said, I'll take the train. I'll be out there in a week. All right. So I set up an empty stage with a great cinematographer named Bill Fraker. Right. And I had cast Burston. And I said, look, we're going to do a test of this guy. And let's do the scene where you first meet him in a little park in Georgetown and you tell him that you think your daughter is possessed. And she said, what, why are we doing this? You've got a great actor. I said, I don't know why we're doing this. And I swear to God, I didn't. 
We shoot the test, no sets, just Bill Fraker lighting in an empty studio. And they did that scene, one take. And then I had Ellen uh, interview Jason with the camera over her shoulder on him, where she just asked him questions about his life, who he was, what his background was, his family, everything. And then uh, I shot a very tight close-up of him saying the mass, but not saying it the way you used to hear it, maybe you still do in church, where the priest just rattles it off you know, in the name of the Father, Son, I said, I say the words of the Mass as though you really mean them, and where you mean every word, and, and say it uh, with as much conviction as you can, and take your time. And I shot that in a close-up. And we did that, and I, I wasn't sure about anything, but Burston came over to me and said, you're not going to hire this guy, are you? And I said, well, why not? She said, he can't act. She said, he, he's not an actor. He can't act. And she said, when I tell Father Karras this story about my daughter, I have to break down and collapse in his arms. And I need a big, strong man to do that. It happened that she had, was going with a big, strong man at that time who had, was an actor that she wanted me to consider. But uh, she said, this guy is about five, six. I said, you, you're probably right. And the next morning, I saw the dailies. And the camera just loved this guy. The camera just loved him. He looked great. He was real. And I went to Warner Brothers, and I said, we're going to pay off Stacy Keach and hire this guy. And they said, you're out of your mind. What is wrong with you? You're crazy, but... You're possessed. Yes. <laughs> Something like that. They didn't want to do it. The writer didn't want to do it. Uh, nobody wanted to do it, but I said, this is what we're going to do. And that's what we did. And um, he was brilliant. Yeah, no, incredible. You said that Nichols said no 12-year-old could carry that film. How did you solve that problem, you yourself, with Linda Blair? Uh, <laughs> Nichols was wrong because he had not met Linda Blair. We, we, had cat, we had auditioned several thousand girls. They were put on tape from all across the country by casting directors. And I must have looked at 500 of them myself, just a minute or two and then out. And it appeared that there was nobody who could play this part, who was 12 years old. And I had reached a point where I felt, Alec, that we couldn't make the picture. You could not find a 12-year-old girl who, A, would understand all this stuff, or B, not be scarred by it, maybe for the rest of her life. And I didn't see that possibility in any of the audition tapes. We started to look at 16-year-olds who looked younger and 15-year-olds. And one day, my assistant in New York said, there's a woman out here who's brought her daughter. Her name is Eleanor Blair. And she doesn't have an appointment. Uh, would you see her? And I said, okay, why not? Because we were striking out all over the place. In came this little girl with her mother. She was 12. 
And I, I knew immediately that she was the girl, instantly. She sat down. She had never acted. She had done those things that you see, like in the New York Daily News and these newspapers with girls model coats and little dresses or shoes or something. She had done that, but no acting. So she sat down with her mother. And I, she was a straight-A student in uh, Westport, Connecticut. And she was a, had won blue ribbons showing horses at Madison Square Garden, but had never acted. But I said to her, Linda, do you know anything about this story? Do you know anything about the, the exorcist story? And she said, oh, yes, I read the book. I said, you did? She said, yes. And I looked at her mother, her mother nodded. And I said, what, what is it about? And she said, well, it's about a little girl who gets possessed by a devil, and she does a whole bunch of bad things. I said, well, like what? And she said, well, uh, she hits her mother across the face, and uh, she pushes a man out of her bedroom window, and she masturbates with a crucifix. And I said, uh, I looked at her mother, who was smiling, <laughs> and I said, do you know what that means? She said, what? I said, to, to, to masturbate. And she said, it was like jerking off, isn't it? And I said, uh, yes. Her mother was still smiling. And I said to her, have you ever done that? Have you ever done what you just said? She said, sure, haven't you? And so I hired her. A kindred spirit, a kindred spirit. When I look at your career, it's a, you, you, you make these films in the early 70s, and by the time you go to make Sorcerer, the movie business has changed. Did you feel that? Did you feel it was yes. changing underneath your feet? Yes. I would tell my younger self or anybody who is starting in the film business at any time, do not escalate your expectations. Learn as much as you can from watching the works of filmmakers you admire. Uh, for the most part, they are the masters. Now, I never studied film. I never spent one day in a classroom learning about film technique. I never studied the, the camera. I started in live television in the mailroom of a television station and worked my way up. In today's world, if you're of any age, you can go out. You can buy a little digital camera. You can go out and shoot your own film and learn from what you're doing. You don't need to go to a, a film school or a film class. I think you just need to practice. If I was starting today, I would get it together, buy a camera, shoot something that represented how I felt about things, cut it, and then you can also put it on the internet. You can watch William Friedkin's movie, The Exorcist, right now on Netflix. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Here's the Thing is produced by WNYC Radio in association with Stony Brook Southampton Graduate Arts.